This is the Otaku Nate Show, episode 31. Aka 13 Territory Inspections Department. Smoke em if you got em. What is up, anime fans? Otaku Nate here with another installment of the Otaku Nate Show. The anime podcast where we talk about anime that we want to talk about. Joining me this week is Eric Berg. Howdy, folks. And Bronx Kuma. What's good, people? And this week, we are going to be talking about Aka 13 Territory Inspections Department. Or as we shall call it from this point out, Aka 13 for short. Released in 2017 by Studio Madhouse, it ran for a total of 12 episodes, plus an OAV, and was based on a manga by acclaimed author Natsume Ono, author of works like Ristorante Paradiso and House of Five Leaves, both of which got anime adaptations. Her most acclaimed work, though, was a simple one-shot manga called Not Simple, which is a fantastic manga if you've never read it. The director of this series was somebody whose work we've actually discussed before on the show, and that would be Shingo Natsume. He's an incredibly talented animator, but directing-wise, oh man. He was put behind the driver's wheel on Space Dandy. He directed One Punch Man, the good season of One Punch Man, I should say, the first season. Uh, he directed Boogie Pop and others, which... That's probably his weakest offering, but it's still good. And his most recent work was the acclaimed 2021 series, Sunny Boy. As for who wrote the series, well, that belongs to one Tomohiro Suzuki, who also wrote the script on all of One Punch Man, and I think his only other notable work was working on the Tiger and Bunny spin-off, Double Decker, which I actually enjoyed more than Tiger and Bunny, so... That kind of tells you a little something about it, the caliber of writing we're dealing with. So, what's the story behind Aka 13? Yeah, should I kick things off? Whoever wants to, go ahead. Alright, so I guess I will. So, Aka 13 uh, is a short series that covers the events of an internal affairs investigation department of the country of Aka. Uh, Aka was previously a continent divided into 13 smaller kingdoms, but after a war and various treaties, um, the countries came together in to a larger um, uni united front and have celebrated what at the beginning of the series is 99 years of peace under unification. The series follows the titular, uh, the main character uh who's a chief inspector for the internal affairs uh investigation of Akka in an unusual situation he finds himself potentially at the risk 
of losing his job as there are some superiors that deem his department um, redundant and unnecessary as there hasn't really been any sort of upheaval to undo the peace that has happened since unification. But after rumors start spreading of a possible coup, a very sudden uh, change of heart is made on behalf of the higher-ups in uh, Akka's investigative department to keep the Internal Affairs Department alive, provided that the main character can complete internal affairs investigations of all 13 districts across the continent within a six-month period, which is ridiculous. That's ludicrous to ask of anybody. <laughs> the only thing I'd add is that I think it's really interesting that they pull Akka as like part of the way that all the territories keep the rest of everyone honest in order to unite. It's an integral part of the unification process. Yeah, that's very true. Akka is sort of seen as this sort of... So unlike other shows that have sort of political undertones where the government can be seen as maybe like a necessary evil, Akka is shown as necessary, but definitely not evil or oppressive by any means. Um, as we were discussing very sort of briefly before like we actually started recording... Anka, I think, has its own set of bureaucracy that some may not always agree with, but it's generally understood, like, this is for the better good, and this represents the goodness of our unity together. Yeah, it's a pretty good uh, pretty good example of what, what we would hope out of public servants. And we'll get into the politics of the Department of Akka and its kingdom when we get to the story itself, but... That's the premise of Akka. So where did you guys first hear of Akka 13, and what were your initial impressions of it when you first watched it? I first heard about it, honestly, from a mother's basement, like, top OPs. And coming out of 2017, I, I saw the OP, had to see this show, and I absolutely loved it. Showed it to my wife. This gave me a great chance to rewatch it for a third time. I just was really impressed with how lived in and kind of integral the world is where it's not like every character has like a 10 page backstory, but you see all the little parts of this society where it really does feel like it's a slice of or maybe not quite a slice of life, but it really feels like you are living in the real world and then these huge events happen. But it's not like that makes everybody just pause their real world life, too. And it makes it feel a lot more realistic and just kind of a lot more true to life. Yeah, I definitely have to agree. I think the show really does a good... It's not often that you see any form of visual media portray a world as, as you said, feeling lived in or feeling fleshed out. Um and some, when they do world building, get overly expository um, in trying to fill that gap. But with Akka, the world just very much feels alive and grounded. And it was really refreshing to see. And I can honestly say that's my overall impression of the show. The show is stylish and visually appealing and smart. But it's refreshing in that despite 
all those things that you expect of a show of this nature that's somewhat politically charged and has like sort of like um what's it called like espionage undertones to it you expect it to maybe be like over the top in its representation of style Akka is never over the top um and that's really refreshing it's like a crisp uh aperitif after like a heavy meal it's something that you will easily find yourself sort of indulging in in one sit through but feel like you can definitely go back and rewatch it and find other things to enjoy about it that are subtle and small but give weight and add a uh, sort of like depth of flavor to the overall presentation as per where i've heard akka um so i never actually had seen the show or really heard of it prior to nate asking me if i was interested in being a part of this uh episode of the otaku nate show with him however i will say even before i had seen the show i have seen art of the characters in this show because the creator of this show is very known for doing a lot of boys love and the characters that she makes often inspire a lot of fan art and fan literature so i've seen artwork of the main characters uh but not in an official capacity we'll leave it at that the way i heard of aka 13 was anime news network announcing that one of natsume ono's works was going to be getting a new anime adaptation I had heard of Natsume Ono, I had heard and read reviews of her stuff, but I never read any of her material proper. So, for this, I did my research. I read as much of Akka as I could, and I read a little bit of both Ristorante Paradiso and Not Simple. And, to put it simply, and this plays into what Adam talked about with Natsume Ono, Natsume Ono is one of those authors who reminds me why I like manga. I think for so many people who get into manga through things like Demon Slayer or Jujutsu Kaisen or My Hero, they think that manga is nothing more than cool artwork with flashy fight scenes. And part of the reason why I like Natsume Ono as an author is that she's the antithesis of all that. Her artwork is... well, I guess we should talk about this in animation. It's amateurish almost by design because if you look at some of her early stuff her artwork is uh, a bit on the rough side almost purposely rough and i noticed that when reading akka she's very laid back very down to earth with her storytelling she's not an author that demands your attention that is going to make big artistic statements She's more an author who wants to tell you a story and asks politely that you listen. It's so refreshing to have that kind of writing where it feels so natural, where it, none of these characters are making lines so they can be quotable. They're, they're quotable just because, like, that's just the natural way of things, you know. Once in a while you'll run across a quotable line in a discussion. And I think that's what makes it so brilliant is that it just feels like these are conversations that you would have and they don't feel written as much as they feel just like she was writing down what was being spoken at her. And I think this also goes for her artwork because Natsume Ono 
also doesn't draw anything that's super dynamic. She is as basic as basic gets. I told you about this in private, Eric, but some of her early works like Not Simple and her anthology series Danza can be a bit on the rough side. Like, she's not drawing in your typical style. They come off like drawings by a high schooler. Yeah, I'd have to agree. While I really only know her predominantly for Akka, when you mentioned Not Simple prior to recording the episode, something about the title stuck out to me. Like, I feel like I had heard of it before. So I went looking online, and I had definitely seen that cover art and that artwork before. And even though her artwork has improved for sure since then there is still that roughness to it then the only other artist that i can compare her to is a, another sort of boys love manga artist named hakasi mizuki uh and she unlike ono hasn't had the privilege of having her work turned into any sort of animated uh adaptation but she sort of enjoyed a sort of underground celebrity for her series, uh, The Demon Auroron, uh, that was very much like sort of supernatural boys love, kind of in line with if you've ever seen Angel Sanctuary, something along those lines. I'm glad she kept some of the roughness, because when you sent the links to Not Simple over, it was interesting. You could kind of see like the parts of the style that she kept. And I'm glad she did, because part of what makes, it's kind of with the writing the same, what makes the moments and the action pieces, I mean, not action pieces, I should say, but the climaxes of the stories pop, is that they stand out in, you know, the everyday life of the rest of the, the show. And so by kind of taking the art and having it still have this kind of roughness and simpleness to it, it makes when those action pieces hit or the the climaxes hit they they hit more than you would in something that would be more complex i think yeah i think i'm inclined to agree i think in particular there's one episode where i forget the name of the territory i think it's shio shio assistant it's the one that has the territory that looks very much like colonial england like suitsu suitsu yeah yes the climax of that episode in particular, I think, stands out in very stark contrast to the very sort of... I don't want to say Akka is necessarily muted in its presentation, but compared to how very almost slice of life the other episodes are, Suitsu uh, episode definitely sticks out when the action kicks off. Because when it does, it, it kind of reminds you, like, yes, there are things happening in the overarching sort of story, but they also don't necessarily interrupt, and this is the point I believe you were making before, Eric, the overarching issues don't interrupt day-to-day -day life for everybody in the country as a whole. Like, yeah, maybe something bad happened in, like, let's say, New York, but New York's bad incident isn't going to stop people in Boston or Philadelphia from just going out and getting sandwiches and living their lives, you know? And yeah, and the Ferosu episode was very similar in that, where there's one story beat there that almost comes out of nowhere. I mean, you see it coming, but you're kind of impressed they go where they did, and it hits harder because it's something that hasn't been used elsewhere in the story. Natsume Ono's artwork feels more akin to something you would see in a magazine illustration 
she borrows more from Franco-Belgian artists than her contemporaries, or even old pioneers like Ryoko Ikeda and Hagio Moto. As the two of you said, she does get a lot better, and even though her drawings get more detailed and her characters look a little more realistic, she has a style that is still uniquely hers. And I think the anime does a great job of adapting that artwork in motion. So did the other two adaptations, How the Five Leaves and Ristorante Paradiso, which I also hope to talk about sometime on this show. Yeah, it's been interesting because I picked up the two PS mangas, and I, I hadn't read the original, although I looked at some of the artwork. And one of the smart things about the adaptation is they let kind of the characters stay that simple, you know, very much embracing her style. And then they spend the entire rest of the budget on backgrounds and kind of cinematography, which works really well because it doesn't take away from the style at all while creating this just drop dead gorgeous surrounding to have these characters in. Yeah, you notice that too, right? Like the backgrounds are really like I was surprised at the the end of nature of like the architecture and like the infrastructure that they went and illustrating in this uh, anime. I was really astounded by like how much it, like you said, it complements the characters, but it, it, it you could take them on their own, like in a museum. They're gorgeous. It's especially impressive when you remember that. Like, this isn't all set in one place. It's set in 13 wildly different... So you've got, you know, backgrounds that look like Switzerland. You've got backgrounds that look like Greece or backgrounds that are like a port city that, you know, you desperately want to go fishing in. It's it's not just the detail, but like the amount of time and effort to do this in this kind of anime where you've got setting after setting after setting. Okay, I'm looking up who did the artwork. It's somebody named Rico Sudo. I believe they go under the name of Ogura Kobo. And they've done background art for things like Deno Coil. Uh, they did episodes of Devilman Crybaby. They did Fafner. Uh, the aforementioned Sunny Boy, they did the first episode for that. Sarazan Mai, Princess Jellyfish. They've done a lot of background art for some pretty highbrow shows and uh, Gintama too. Well, that would explain that. <laughs> that definitely does. But even despite that like breadth of experience, I'm still really blown away by how far, like you were saying there, how far they went to sort of portray these districts because not only are they vastly different from one another, like geographically, but once you see the cultural district the differences between the districts as well, it further punctuates just how different each place is. And yet it all feels like this is one cohesive nation. That even though each district has its own culture, its own customs, the world feels lived in. Like these were actual places that you could go and visit. Yeah, Roksu reminds me a lot of kind of like the Southwest, you know, maybe like Southern Utah, New Mexico. You've got Panetta that, I mean, I've driven across Nevada multiple times. That is the epitome of the middle of nowhere, Nevada. It, it's so cool to see these places where you're like, I feel like I've been there. It's a fictional place, but I feel like I've been there. Yeah, I think that feeling of familiarity is especially well done where especially when you consider most anime are, you know, obviously they're based in Japan, 
you draw what you know. But when you have a show like Aka 13 that seems very much representative of the West and being a Westerner and feeling that sense of familiarity within a show like this that's not produced in the West, that is high-quality visual storytelling. Natsume Ono tends to set a lot of her works in places that are not Japan. This is true of Not Simple, which follows one boy's journey across the globe from Australia to England to America. You have Ristorante Paradiso, which takes place in Italy. And then you have Akka, where the kingdom is on a fictional continent, but it feels very much like it's set somewhere in America or with some slight European influence in it. Yeah, it very much felt like uh, she took the areas of the world that she really enjoyed being at and had these ideas of different scenes in her head and then just based out like, okay, what are the most interesting places I can make with those? Because each of the territories is so unique and, and so much thought put into them. If you're somebody who loves taking anime screen caps, just the simple still shots across the various landscapes of Akka can be breathtaking. I really need to give kudos also to color design chief Ken Hashimoto, because he chose the most beautiful, most vibrant colors for this series. Every single color choice that he makes for the character designs, for the backgrounds, for the lighting, just pops right off your screen. Even in some of the places, you know, there's a district where they live underground. Even then, it, it's colored in such a way that isn't dark and depressing. It's lived in and, you know, it's, it's underground, so it's got its own palette. But it still, even in that location, it's still popping off the screen and feeling completely lived in. I believe the word you're looking for to describe the color choice is earthy colors. Bingo. Uh, before we move on, do we have a favorite character design in the show? Favorite character design? I'm actually quite fond of Lilium. Ah, Chief Grossular's second-in-command. Lilium's character design is great because Lilium has this coyness to him, this practice coyness that you don't see very often in anime. I feel like when... People with his expression are portrayed in other series. It's more of a smugness, and that's not to say there isn't some smugness there. But Lilium's very good at hiding what he truly wants. And the fact that on top of that, Lilium's rather attractive, and Ono does have that proclivity for creating sort of boys' love manga and stories. Um, yeah, Lilium is definitely... Um, fan art material we'll put it like that she's very good at conveying a character's personality through their designs without explicitly telling you how they behave yeah i think that would go to my two favorite one is gene maybe it's just because i'm blonde too but there's this coolness about him where he's always in control of every situation even when it feels out of control and the way that they build this character where it feels so natural for things to be going out of line, but through his body language and everything else, you just know he's cool as can be and can take what's coming. And then the other one was Grossler, because I think we've all had someone in our lives where 
they were there for us in a really awful moment. And it was really impressive to be able to create a character design where he could have walked out. You could have known nothing more about him, but just through his body language, how he's designed, his stoicness, it makes perfect sense that uh, people would find and have immediate respect for the man and, and appreciate and feel like he actually felt for them. And it's really almost a character design thing more than it is anything else. I think my favorite is the uh, police constable rail, simply because I love his hair. I mean, come on. That hair is absolutely perfect. But he's also, if you look at his default facial expression, he comes off as somebody who's very uptight about his job. Somebody who demands that you respect his authority. Yet he has that softness to his overall look. That's my favorite. And I also like Pine simply because he's a big boy. <laughs> uh, Jamoku will do that to you. <laughs> oh, we'll get to Jamoku. Yeah, just going off very briefly off your favorite character designs before we move on. I think what I find most interesting about Groschler is while Groschler's overall demeanor inherently sort of commands like a respect, even if not in the way where, like, Rails sort of, like, demands it of you. Like, Groschler just has it. I think it's also interesting to see Groschler in uniform versus the moments where he's in his native territory and he's not in uniform. I think seeing this sort of contemplative, introspective nature of his character, especially when he's not on duty, further solidifies that sort of contemplative respect that people just... Ex- have of him um like you know like if you're to go to him with some sort of problem he's not going to turn the other cheek or turn up his nose at you um and you can trust in what he has to say as you go through uh discussing your issues with him i just he's a really complex character and i think he's one of the best portrayed ones in the show for sure i also want to give an honorable mention to mauve because if if you want to write a textbook on how you build a female character that grabs the attention of every single person in the room, but does it based on design and not, you know, delving into fan service or anything else, just like commanding presence in a room. It's the textbook example of how to do that. Oh, absolutely. Mauve is purely professional. And yeah, we know she is sexy. It's obviously there, but it's not, pandering or degrading or sort of like lewd in any way it's just it's understood she knows it's there but it's not like she's weaponizing it or using it it's just a part of her and it's not the most important part but the fact that it's there on top of how well put together she is professionally as well and how steadfast she is and holding to her principles it just she's she's a solid character She's yet another example of Ono telling you everything you need to know about a character just through facial shapes. How she draws Mauve's eyes, her rounded face, her flowing purple hair. She commands a room whether you're attracted to her or not. <laughs> she's in command of every scene she's in. Eh, not as much as somebody like a balalaika, but as soon as you walk in, she'll always get your attention. And I think we've uh, said everything we have to say about the anime. Oh, 
Well, there's one aspect about the animation, and we don't normally take this long about it, but we've had a lot to say about its overall aesthetic, and it's mostly due to its artist. But can we talk about the food porn in this show for a moment? Oh, God. Do not no, watch Aka 13 if you are hungry, because you will want, eat your screen. I want a snowball. I agree with Lada. I want a snowball. So I had never even heard of these things until this show. And I kid you not, I then made the snowballs because they looked so Ooh. damn good. And they are so darn good. And they're not that bad to make either. But, like, this is literally how good the food looks in the show. You will end up making some of it. It is, you know, the joke is always anime food looks so good. But this is a whole nother level. And they just relish it. And it's so much fun. Yeah, they really do. Well, it had me craving for the uh, the snowball for sure. I think the one thing, you know, that really sort of caught my attention that I've really gotten nostalgic for was at one point Lada takes Owl to a cafe and they're discussing a suite in another district that's, it's an apple cake, not a pie, it's a cake. And I think they're making a reference in particular to a Belgian apple cake that I had once when I was a kid. It's so decadent such a delight to eat and as soon as they mentioned it i just had instant nostalgia because i remember the textural contrast and the taste of like the walnuts and the apple and the cake and the icing all together it's such a delight and like when said this will definitely have your mouth watering if you're watching it i could not help but indulge in some sweets myself while i was watching it reminds me of one of my favorite things about traveling you're just always so surprised about regional specialties that you've never heard of and you run into them and all of a sudden it's like, how did I ever live my life without St. Louis Uigui cake? I don't understand. And it was the same kind of thing where it was just these little regional specialties where you're like, oh, oh I am so glad I know about that now because now I've got to make it. Food is very much an aesthetic in Natsume Ono's works. You can tell that I haven't read too much of her manga outside of the ones I did, but Ristorante Paradiso is very much a food-centric manga, as you could tell by the title, and it carries over here, and I think, in a stealth way, this is her love letter to the patissiers out there, the people who made all these very lush baked goods, these very artisan baked goods, even something as simple as bread looks absolutely delicious, and... As we'll see, Gene has kind of a thing for bread in this show. Oh, family does. Of course, though, the most delicious food comes in the district of Jumoku, where everything is big. Yeah, I thought that was kind of hilarious, the fact that Gene's, like, co-workers from Akka, like, got transferred over to that district. They're like, man, you got kind of fat. Like, we can't help it, man. Yo, like, a small is, like, an extra large where we are back home. I would not want to live in Jumoku. I'm just going to say that right now. I I enjoy my food, but that's too much for me, man. It's kind of a fun realism thing, too, because if you... Like, they don't grow much in Alaska, but the stuff they do grow is huge because the days are so freaking long. Um, and so it just reminded me of that, and I thought it was kind of this cool, like, realism touch, not that Jumoku's based on Alaska, but if your growing season is very long this can happen we've talked for like almost a half hour about the animation let's move on to the soundtrack and oh my god oh my god no. oh Dio. my 
God, this soundtrack. We just reviewed Guilty Crown, and that was a Hiroyuki Sawano sort of big wall of noise soundtrack. So you can imagine just how much better I felt listening to a soundtrack where you can just put it on and kind of chill. Because it's wonderful listening to a soundtrack that is composed by somebody who knows how to make background music, rather than just ambient white noise like Hiroyuki Sawano. To be fair, I think Hiroyuki's capable of making like the big bombastic stuff bombastic when it needs to be. We talked about this last episode. He's good at making action music, and he's good at punctuating big dramatic moments, and he can't do anything else. Exactly. He, I'm sorry, but you can say bass Sawano all you want, Try humming a background track that he's composed. Where just two people are talking to each other. You can't. But real Takahashi, on the other hand. Oh, this guy, Takahashi was like a big band of 60s rock band The Ventures, according to his Wikipedia page. Yes, he, he in multiple interviews, he talks about it. Which makes a lot of sense, actually. One of their big hits was Hawaii Five O's theme... Oh, that's them? Man, I had no idea. Because I read Rio Takashi's, like, wiki page, and I wasn't so sure who the benches are, but once he said Hawaii Five-O, I was like, damn, okay, that makes a lot of sense now. Their other big hit was Walk, Don't Run, which you'll recognize it if you hear it, but you wouldn't probably be able to hum it offhand. I know that they did a pretty jamming version of the old rock and roll song Nut Rocker, which I heard in, of all things, a montage of Bobby Orgles. But the soundtrack for Akka 13, it's just this great mix of smooth jazz and funk music. And boy, you put this on in the background when you're cooking, man. Oh, the vibes it takes. Like, I tend to listen to lighter stuff when I'm driving down to Middletown when I have to announce for uh, Titans games. And Akka 13 is on my short list of stuff that I want. The, everything from, like, the low-key ambient music to the more flashy, funk-oriented tracks on this. Oh, this soundtrack is so good. Those are the best anime soundtracks, in my humble opinion. The best anime soundtracks aren't the ones that are big and loud. It's the ones where you can listen to them out of context and still enjoy them. I think what Ryu Takahashi, like, what makes him so incredible is he will pump you out a banger opening song, like the one to this one or one from the same year the opening song to Prince's Principle, like at the, the highest level, like, you know, Sawano level or better. And then, yeah. And then you can do all the composing in the background where you just want to put on two hours of excellent jazz in the background of your workday. Here you go. It's, he's so versatile in a way that not a, you know, it's not a very long list of people who are as versatile um, mm. and excellent as he is. I think that's a good transition to the opening, because, uh, the opening does not really fit the show's breezy, laid-back nature, but I don't care because the opening to this show slaps! Yo, when you played this for me and you were like, yo, would you mind, uh, what's it called, check out this anime for the show, the intro sold me alone. The intro is so good. It is so good. It is difficult for me to put into words how this intro makes me feel. I think the closest 
that I felt in recent history that kind of gets me jumping the same way was Ali's intro for B-Stars. It just, it hits. It hits right. And I love hearing this sort of resurgence of jazz and funk in anime again and in music in general. It's so good. It hits so nice. This is Ryo Takahashi's group One Three Notes, I believe that's how you say that. Yeah, and he's also done stuff as Void Chords. He did the opening for Princess Principal. He also did the music for Arifurieta, From Commonplace to World's Strongest. He did the OSTs to Skate the Infinity. Uh, the Vampire Dies in No Time. He got his start doing the music for Tell Me Galko-chan. Another series that also has surprisingly good low-key music. And also going back to his like more bombastic, like expressive, like uh, intros, like you mentioned, like with this one being very jazzy. Uh, if you haven't watched The Vampire Dies in No Time, that show also has a very goddamn that hits jazz intro. And I don't understand why he made it for what's essentially a slapstick comedy anime, but damn, does it go in hard. And he's currently doing the music for High Card. This man enjoys his bass. He, he plays bass, and he will throw horns into anything. And those are two things I can get behind 100%. Can I, just... I don't know if he ever did a live version of the Akka, but he did an entire concert for Princess Principal. And watching him play live and the band that he puts together, you can see how the quality comes out the other end. If you're not sold on Akka just from a visual standpoint, you listen to that opening you know you're going to be ready for something special. Especially once that chorus hits. Oh, it's godly. It's so good. It's so good. I remember when I first heard that opening, it was like during the pandemic when things were slowly starting to open up here in New Jersey. I went to my local pinball place and just put on my anime openings playlist on Shuffle. That thing came up and I'm like, wow, what's this? The opening to an I forgot, it's to Aka 13, which for such a low-key shot of such a bombastic opening, man. It kind of works though, because, you know, at the very end, you know, you just got to stay cool. It's never really what it seems. And to some extent, that's kind of what Akka is, right? Like, there's a lot of bombast and crazy. I mean, there's there's a plotting of a coup that would just tear this nation apart, all happening in the background. And yet on the front, it's just, you know, people going about their day, having a time. And I think that's what's kind of fun about it is, yeah, like, all this insane palace intrigue is going on. And yet on the surface, it's not making the biggest ripples in the world like you would think. Actually, now that you put it in that perspective, especially when you take the lyrics into account, yeah, the intro works really well in tandem with the story that's being told. It feels more like it was a song that was made specifically for the show rather than meant to promote an artist's new single like so many uh, anime openings are nowadays. Well, I take that back. It's kind of been that way since the 80s. And you can thank Gundam for that. As good as this song is, and it is insanely good, it kind of could only work with Akka. And you'll almost see the OP coming in your head as you go through because it's just, it's so well done that it's intricately tied in with, with the different parts of what it was made for. 
Could I mention the ED real fast? I like the ED too. It's incredibly low key, very breezy and laid back, a lot more reflective of Akka's nature and a nice bookend to each episode. I especially love the animation. I just love that I didn't really get why it was there until about episode eight or nine. And then it all made sense. And it's like, okay, so you guys put an ED in here that basically people won't get until two thirds of the way through the anime. Good on you. I love when anime endings do that. Uh, Just to, to chime in on the ending. Um, not only do I appreciate that aspect of the storytelling, uh, in terms of how the ending relates to it, but I do have to give kudos to whoever was in charge of the ending animation sequence itself, because I think a lot of people nowadays are sort of making comparisons to things like Chainsaw Man, for example, and when animators use rotoscoping for certain animation moments or effects, Um, when they have trouble capturing it on their own. But it's different when an artist uses rotoscoping to capture movement versus when they're observing and making the strokes their own. And it's been a while since I've seen an animation outro or any piece of animation where I can tell that the artist animating the character is using visual reference but isn't rotoscoping. There's a certain timing in the movements of the dancing figure in the outro that you can tell it is just observed. It's not rotoscope. And I really appreciate that that artist took the time to add their own sense of timing to the movement and the dancing as opposed to just flat out tracing, so to speak, with rotoscoping. It adds a sense of gravity and almost a, a forlorn sort of visual narrative to the ending that I really appreciate, especially considering its grayscale tones. It's it's really gorgeous. I think it's really understated, but it fits really well. Uh, and I think what that, yes, I'm sorry. I know we keep trying to get to the voice acting, and I do want to discuss it too, but I had to say that too, because the ending is beautiful. It's great insight. And uh, according to Anime News Network, the person responsible for that animation is somebody named Izumi Murakami. And I'm looking at their Twitter right now. She specializes in dance movement. I'm going to send this to you guys right now. This is a little sequence that she did involving an animation of Beyonce. Yes, you see, she's doing it there too. She's doing it there too. She didn't rotoscope Beyonce. She just observed her and then she added her own sense of timing with the frames. Like there are certain moments where the frames hold versus when they release and the movement transitions. She's so damn good at this. I'm so glad you showed me this clip. Damn, that is that is very impressive. I haven't been impressed like that in a while. It reminds me of when I was studying animation at SVA in my college days. And just when you see, like, raw animation, oh, God, it hits so nice. Yeah. What does it say about the quality of your show that for an ED, you hire someone who's this elite at what they do? I mean, that's so impressive. You know what? I'm keeping this in there. Please check out Izumi Murakami's Twitter. She does these incredible artwork you can clearly tell she's a student of masaki yuwasa because their styles are incredibly similar observing motion without rotoscoping i guess you could say that anyway voice acting 
as if we haven't bored the viewer enough. Jean is voiced by Hiro Shimono. He is Zenitsu in Demon Slayer, Dobby in My Hero Academia, Connie Springer in Attack on Titan, Sojiro in Log Horizon, and Akihisa Yoshi in Baka and Test. Nino is voiced by Kenjiro Tsuda. We've discussed him before. He's Seto Kaiba in Yu-Gi-Oh! Fire Emblem in Tiger and Bunny. He is Atomic Samurai in One Punch Man. Kento Hanami in Jujutsu Kaisen. For more comedic roles, he is Tatsu in Way of the House Husband. And the Almighty Fungo in 91 Days. Another seiyuu we've talked about, Junichi Suwabe, is Grossular. He's the voice of Space Dandy, as well as Victor in Yuri on Ice, Archer in the Fate series, and Grim Joe in Bleach. Lilium is voiced by Koji Yusa. Speaking of Tiger and Bunny, he is Lunatic in that series. He is Hakataku in Hozuki's Cool-Headedness. Sanosuke Haruda in the Hakuoki series. Vincent Law in Ergo Proxy, and, and to be a little relevant, he's Gin Ichimaru in Bleach. Mauve is played by Atsuko Tanaka. She's the Major in Ghost in the Shell, Cornelia in Code Geass, Caster in the Fate series, and the Japanese voice of Bayonetta. Now, if you guys follow me on social media... I have been proclaiming that I have become Symphopilled, in that I have started getting into Sympho gear, and I plan on watching all of it, as well as making a panel about Sympho gear. Well, the show that I watched previously, prior to Akka 13, was Sympho Gear G, and I sat down and watched through Akka. Little did I know that my eyes would pop when I read the credits and saw that Jean's sister Lotta was voiced by Yuki Aoi, the voice of everybody's favorite giga-chad lesbian hamster, Hibiki Tachibana, the lead heroine in Simpho Gear. I haven't seen Simpho Gear, but is that punchy McFisty Simpho Gear, the short hair blonde one? Yep, that's Hibiki. I've yet to see Simple Gear, but every time I see her transformation sequence and like anime compilations or I see her design, I'm like, oh my god, that is peak tough girl. That is peak Street Fighter design. I love it so much. There's a reason why everybody calls her Hamster. She also has a lot of big roles in Shonen Jump series. She is Tsuya Asui, or Froppy, in My Hero Academia, Diane in The Seven Deadly Sins, Tatsumaki in One Punch Man, Kotatsu Tamaki in Fire Force. She is the voice of Futaba in Persona 5. And everybody's favorite petite fascist, Tanya Degurachov in the Saga of Tanya the Evil. Oh, and she also sings the ending to Tanya the Evil. So every time I hear Los Los Los, all I can think of is, this is Hibiki singing if Hibiki was a villain. <laughs> Oh, and it turns out Hibiki wasn't the only dark magical girl that she played that decade. She's the voice of Madoka in Madoka Magica. That is really stunning. And I like the fact that, you know, not only 
is the Japanese cast like pretty flush. But you mentioned in particular My Hero Academia. When I did not watch the sub of this, I watched the dub of this. And going through the cast, not only is there a bevy of talent even in the dub as well, but a lot of the English dub consists of actors primarily from three series Dongan Rampa, My Hero Academia, or Dragon Ball Z. Well, it's a Funimation dub, so you have to expect these things. I originally watched the dub, but the OAV regards is only subbed, and I was pretty impressed. Um, you know, usually I stick with dubs just because it's easier to get inflection and some of the other things um, when it's done well in your own language, but I thought the sub was well done and the, the characters fit real well, and they did a good job of doing that same subdued, very natural delivery. I have to talk about the dub. I enjoyed the dub, but I think I like the sub a bit more. I think one thing that kind of ruined the dub for me, because I read the manga before I watched the anime, and the way Seven Seas localized the manga translation with how the characters talk, it seemed like they spoke with British accents. And sadly, there are no British accents in the English dub. I guess it's because, due to the whole simul-dub nature, there's no real time to work on your accent, considering how many different variations of the British accent there is, you know, Western English, Geordie, Cockney, Southern British, etc. It may not have been variants in terms of regionality and the dialects expressed in the dub, um, and considering the um, nature of some of the regions in Akka, uh, it is a little surprising that they didn't try to express that a little more in terms of um, performance. But for what it's worth, despite what you said, you know, casting being what it was, especially it being a Funimation production, it is rather nice, much like with we've expressed with the visual and auditory presentation of the show, that the show is very much a palate cleanser compared to a lot of its contemporaries. The vocal performances, I feel, even in the dub, uh, are very much that. Hearing people and even the lesser characters in this show who are played by characters like uh, the person who voiced Android 17 or the person who voiced Dr. Giroux, hearing those actors who are very known for sort of gruff, manly characters play these subdued, grounded characters and sort of stretching their legs vocally, so to speak. It was really refreshing. Everything about Africa is really refreshing. And I really can't express that enough to anybody listening to this episode. They did a great job of casting people where one of the things I caught the second and third time through is if you know kind of the ages and, and some more of the plot, you kind of start to notice that some of the casting was done where it does sound like the older people are older, the younger people are younger. There's a real interesting subtlety to the cast that I think was another really smart detail where it no longer feels like, oh, we, you know, we're Funimation. We have to have J. Michael Tatum somewhere. If you picked out one character in that show that he had to be, he was the one character he had to be kind of thing. Grossiller is played by Ian Sinclair, and Ian Sinclair can do anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but on the subject of actors, I did not expect to see Austin Tyndall in a leading role so soon. 
and holy crap, considering the last episode I saw him as such an uninspired character like Shu, the difference between Shu and Jean is just night and day in terms of how they're written. Shu is just generic anime hero. Jean, meanwhile, is a very, I don't want to say complicated, but more nuanced sort of hero. A passive hero, yeah. shall we say. And then when you throw it in that the year before he was Angelo in 91 Days, it's a very different <laughs> thing than the generic white bread protagonist. I only watched the dub of 91 Days once. I really need to go back and revisit that show. I forgot that he was Angelo in that. He plays low-key characters so well. But he can also do comedy. I mean, he was Ayumu in Is This a Zombie? He was Subaru and my roommate is a cat, which, again, does a great job. He was the original Chainsaw Man in that show. <laughs> yeah, I think the ah. dub is fine. If you're a dub fan, you'll appreciate it. I just liked the sub a smidge more. I can respect that opinion. Again, I've yet to watch the sub, but considering the talent that you've expressed is on the show, or especially amongst the main cast, yeah, there's. I don't think you can go wrong either way. There's solid talent through and through. And I just want to put another plug in for Christopher Bevins as Nino. He just nails the entire thing, which is especially difficult given the fact that this man is a turn. I mean, he's got like three or four different sides that he's playing at any given time. So it was just a very impressive vocal performance. I keep forgetting that he's still voice acting. Like, didn't he move to California? Hey, you don't have to always live in Texas just to get work in anime. That's true. Sometimes people live in other Texas. We got one voice actress who's recording things in Virginia, and she's in some discotheque dubs. Ooh, nice. Anyway, I think we've uh, discussed a lot about the aesthetics of Akka, but now we have to talk about the show itself. And I guess my opening statement is... I love Akka 13, but it is not something that I would recommend to a casual fan. I made a bit of a shitpost the other day about how people whose only exposure to anime is big shonen action properties like Dragon Ball Z and Naruto and so on, the second you sit them down to watch something that is low-key, deals with complex issues, has more subtle, nuanced characters focuses more on storytelling through dialogue and world building, and is overall more focused on immersing you in the world it's set in, they'll say, eh, this show is boring, and they'll just turn it off. Akka, and by extent most of Natsume Ono's work, is a show that is not meant for people who want something bombastic and over the top. Akka is a show, and even if it is a political drama, it's not like revealing shocking twists every single episode to hook you in to come back next time. It's more just, you sit down, you watch an episode, you take in a new part of the world that the show has revealed to you, and then you just move on to the next thing. It's a very breezy, easygoing show, and for what is effectively a political drama, it's shockingly relaxed like this is a good show to watch after you've had a long day and you just want to unwind because Akka is such an aesthetically pleasing show and the way it tells its story doesn't necessarily need you to pay attention at all times you can just get lost in the world that it's created uh, I definitely have to agree you know you talk about like 
audiences and you know reception of products versus like who they're meant for and you had mentioned something earlier about how ono crafts stories in such a way where they don't demand your attention but if you're there and have the time you would like to tell you a story i feel like the best way to summarize Aka's story is that it has podcast appeal you don't necessarily have to watch it, although I do recommend you do, because as we expounded on uh, incredibly at this point, um, visually and aesthetically, it's very wonderful to take in. But you, despite those strong aesthetics, you don't actually have to watch Akka to enjoy Akka. It's got radio show appeal. And I find as I've gotten older and especially have other things to do, but still crave new media, Things with radio show or podcast appeal are gorgeous. They're resplendent in how well they do their stories because if the visuals are just another layer but not the crux of what it is you want to convey, that's solid storytelling. And I think people who, like you said, are used to the big bombastic shonen uh, appeals they're not going to get that, but people who are more experienced or are looking for more subtle storytelling, they're going to get that, and they're going to appreciate that quite a bit. I always thought it was interesting because sometimes you'll run into people who say that, oh, well, I don't like anime, but Cowboy Bebop's the only anime I, I, you know, I, I do like that. I'm yet to meet anyone to say that about Akka, but I could completely see it. Because if you like kind of the West Wing aesthetic or the, you know, aesthetic of a political drama with real lived-in characters, you don't necessarily need to be an anime fan because this just doesn't, you know, I'm an anime fan, I love it, but if you're turned off by a lot of the anime cliches and, and storytelling tropes, like this just doesn't have them. It's so unique. And I can't really think of any other anime I've seen, except for maybe bits and pieces of some other ones in, in how they do their storytelling, like Kino's Journey or something. But really, the way it's built, I can't think of one that I would say is really all that similar. It remi- You mentioned The West Wing, the show that it reminds me the most with how dialogue-heavy it is, although the show's aesthetics don't pop nearly as much as Akka 13s do. The big one for me is Legend of the Galactic Heroes, where all the intrigue and politics in that series are conveyed mostly through dialogue. Like LOGH, Akka 13 is very much a talking head sort of show. You try showing this to a casual fan who only watches big shonen or big action series, they'll be bored to tears with Akka. But you show this to somebody who enjoys sitting down and likes listening to NPR or someone like my mom who enjoys watching movies on the Hallmark channel, they will jive with this thing instantly. Yeah, I think it's interesting that Eric sort of mentioned the idea of Akka's presentation being something that isn't entirely matched in other shows, but you can see aspects of it tangentially in other shows. And if I had to name another show that has a similar vibe, not a similar story, because the stories are quite different in sort of the settings, but in terms of not only a visual aesthetic, but also an audience, I think that would appreciate it. 
if either of you have seen Blue Period on Netflix, I feel like people who would be into Blue Period would also appreciate Akka because while they're at the crux, very different stories, the way those stories are told and how they're expressed, they're very personable and relatable, but not so much in the way where like maybe like a slice of life or per se a romance drama might overly inundate you with the personal dramas of one's life uh, as they're going through like an emotional change, but more so the idea of that you can see the characters um, living in these shows and see them as real people, especially in westernized media. I don't see it as much as I used to. I felt like even when I was younger, I could see real people in sitcoms even I don't really see that much now. And it's refreshing to see shows that have a sense of empathy that I can find in the characters. Ugh, slice what? of life is anime's laziest genre, said the isekai fan. I think what's also really different about it is usually when you're seeing a anime come out that's kind of trying to do the mechanization of backroom deals and all this stuff it's like stapled and attached to a robot fighting show or, you know, there's something, there's a lot more action attached to it. I mean, think of something like Code Geass for better or for worse. Like there's a lot of that mechanization of the background and strategy and stuff. And this has all the strategy probably written better to be honest, but yet it doesn't feel like it has to also throw the fantastic and, you know, a five-minute battle sequence just for kicks. It knows that the strategy is entertaining enough and the interior politics and people working behind the scenes and trying to get what they want is entertaining enough. You don't need any more window dressing than that. And then, of course, there's the specter of the coup that is constantly looming over it, but it's not like the show is constantly shoving this coup that is going to happen right in your face. Akka, at its core is a show about a country and the people in it and one man who is caught up in a possible political crisis between the kingdom, its people, and the agency that is meant to keep the peace. And I think that's what makes it feel so true to life. I'm, a, I'm involved in local politics and there's, even on a small scale, there's just a lot of these things that are happening in the background at any given time. And then there'll be parts where, you know, your motives intersect with some other motives and then things start to get rolling in a different direction and then people can get caught up in it. It just feels so natural that you could completely see how this could have occurred. It doesn't feel just thrown in there or something where you'd really have to stretch the imagination to believe that a coup could happen in this country and it could have been successful or it could be successful. Of course, you know, because they are they talk about the coup a lot when the coup does happen, it's not like this huge, blown-up kind of moment. I won't tell you how it goes down, but it doesn't go down in the way you would expect it to go down. At least with how most coups are portrayed in media. Yeah, I have to admit that's something that I was actually, again, very pleasantly surprised by. You know, we talk about coups and, you know, you talk about, like, backroom deals. You know, the show's called Akka 13, and I guess if you wanted the exact opposite of how, like, the coup 
works or how backroom deals work in Aqua 13, you can compare it to something else with the 13 in its name, and that would be Organization 13 and Kingdom Hearts. And we all know how over the top Kingdom Hearts is. It's ridiculous, right? But, you know, when you think of these, like, big bombastic things like Kingdom Hearts, Organization 13, or the backroom dealings at Code Geass, or even, like, a somewhat more grounded anime, but still with fantastical settings, like like Megalobox, like some of the criminal underworld dealings in Megalobox, for example, there's still this sort of overbearing weight of, like, you know, the organization or the mafia or something. And with Asuka, it's like, mm, nah, it, it, ain't gonna, it ain't gonna go down how you expect. Also, do you like bread? Bread's <laughs> nice. I once read an interview of somebody who had lived through the fall of the Iron Curtain in one of the Soviet satellite states. And they had this really good way of, of saying it where someone said, like, well, you know, what changed all that day? And it's like, well, you know, I mean, things will change over time. But, like, well, what did you do that day? Well, I celebrated. And then the next day I went back to work and I took my kids to school. And and there's this really cool part to Akka where as much as these high stakes are happening, there's this really cool feeling that, like, yeah, for most people, it's just a Tuesday. And it's not that they don't care. And it's not that it's not important what happens with the royal family or anything else. The coup matters more to the people in power than it does the people of the nation. It's not like the people of the various territories, with the exception of one, are rising up and rebelling against the authorities. It's just, it's an internal power struggle. Yeah, and I think that's a really good analogy for politics because, you know, life goes on. You go to work, you take your kids to school, and, and for most people... That's kind of where it ends. Not that they don't care, but that, you know, life is more than just backroom deals and, and who holds the cards in some political game. I do want to talk about Gene for a moment because Gene, he's sort of our own POV through the kingdom of Akka. He is the main character, but he's more of a passive main character. He doesn't make things happen so much as things happen around him, and he's there to oversee it. You kind of appreciate, yes, there's a, you know, there's an inciting incident, but there's, like, never any point where he's deciding that, like, well, I guess I'm just the protagonist from now on. It, it feels very natural how he becomes the center of attention without him having to break character and be like, hey, I'm the main character, so what else am I going to do? Yeah, I think even towards the end of the series, when things are sort of, like, building to, like, a pressure point, uh, and even, like, uh, Gene's sister, Alada, asked at one point, like, are you okay? He's just kind of, like, sitting and thinking in his old head, and you can see, like, maybe he's a little more stressed than normal, but it's not to the point where, like, the guy's about to have a breakdown, or the guy's like, holy shit, I have to do XYZ because I'm the I'm the A, and it's like, no, it's just like, man, I really wish I can just go to work tomorrow and get a cup of coffee and just, you know, life. I just want to continue working my job. Also, this is the third time this week I've requested a transfer out of this department, and nobody's <laughs> responded to me. Why does nobody <laughs> let me transfer out of this department? Jean is basically the dude from The Big Lebowski. 
Yeah, more subdued, but I, I, I can see the relation. And I think you also see that with his relationship with Nino, because there, there is a point where, regardless of what's revealed, it's obvious that, you know, Gene just wants his friend to go drinking with, and that's all he needs. And there's a great line where it's like, well, you were there when this really traumatic thing happened. That's all I need to know. And I think that really illustrates his, his character. That's not to say that Gene is kind of like a static character where he's just there to oversee everything. He does have a bit of a backstory to him, but it doesn't come into play until near the end of the show. The same goes with Chief Grossular. There's a sense of whose side is he on throughout the show, especially, I forget the name of, it's like the Council of Five. Chief Officers. Yeah, the Five Chief Officers. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. There's always sort of like, Especially, you know, you talk about, like, the building tension and how it, like, contrasts with, like, Gene and, like, everybody else's lives. You know, whenever you're looking at, like, the five chiefs talking, eh, there's always sort of a tension between Groschler and Lilium. Um, and they could never really seem to come to heads. And it always seems like everything is a stalemate between the two. And it always comes down to who amongst the other chiefs will support whom. And I think, like you said... The politics and the struggles are mostly internal. It's it's really amongst them at the end of the day. It's really just amongst the five. And even of the five, it's really just Groschler and Lilium. And everything else just kind of ripples outward from them. I think the other thing that Gene really drives home for me is, I mean, I can't speak for the other two people on this podcast, but I'm pretty confident that I will never, nor any of us will ever be in a position where we're dealing with royal blood and, and you know, a long lost royal family that we've been a part of. Having said that, I think just about all of us have been in situations where you kind of know what the right thing or the best thing to do is. And it's always, or not always, but it can sometimes be in direct opposition to the more ego uh, self-aggrandizing thing. And so that's just a very personal conflict that yes, I mean, this is blown up to proportions that I could never imagine. But like you feel like you've been there. And so it really does pull you along, especially in that last little bit of running through all the different factors you would go through in that kind of decision making. And of course, it also helps that Akka itself has some incredible world building. Even if each territory has its own different aesthetic, again, it feels cohesive. It's the opposite of something like, say, uh, Listeners? Which came out a few years later? Oh boy, that show was a dumpster fire. I never saw it. I kind of wanted to, being a music person. Don't! It didn't take long for me to realize that would have been a waste of my time. All I'm gonna say is, Daisato went out to try and make his own version of Quadrophenia, and he made Ready Player One. Oh, oof. That's kind of rough, because now that you mentioned listeners, I've forgotten which anime it was, but I'm looking at pictures of it again, and I'm like, yeah, I do remember kind of wanting to watch it too, but, oh, oh, don't. What the hell, Daisato? But, uh, we're um, getting off track. Yeah, go ahead. Part of the appeal of Akka to me is just going to each new area and learning how each part of the kingdom works, their imports, their exports, how the climate and the weather affects their economies, their trade, etc., which areas are well off, which ones sort of struggle to make ends meet economically. To sort of get political for a second, it feels sort of reminiscent 
of Thomas Jefferson's vision of America, the idea of federalism, where the central government's power is derived from the state and local level, rather than the central government having the ultimate authority over the states. And I think Akka is sort of meant to be a mediator between the local autonomous regions of Akka and the central monarchy or kingdom, etc. It doesn't idealize monarchy as a legitimate form of government, but more or less the monarchy is there as a means to an end. It's a very interesting take on kind of the civil service and what the job of the civil service is. You've got each of the governments doing their own thing, and then it's kind of Akka's job to literally make the trains run on time and and make it all work together as a cohesive whole. So I, I really, yeah, I can see that. It's it's a fairly decentralized thing, but kind of the, the tape and the glue that holds it all together is Akka making the all the different states actually be able to cooperate and trust each other because I think that's one of the problems you have when things are so decentralized is how do you trust that the other parts of the world are pulling their weight too. And it's not even just uh, the idea of like, how do we make these disparate parts work together as a unit? Uh, I think as we see, as Gene goes through like the different territories, especially uh, we were speaking about it before the show is uh, Ostia, the territory that's most like colonial America. Suitsu. Uh, Suitsu. It's also how does in the face of growing change around you, how do you choose to move forward uh, in conjunction and in relation to those around you? Suitsu is probably the most interesting uh, territory in terms of how starkly different it is from everybody else, especially um, Grocer, uh, which is uh, Gene's uh, native native district. And Grocer feels very much between its technology and its infrastructure. It feels very much like just modern America. Like I was honestly looking at some streets. I was like, oh, that kind of looks like the financial district of, you know, downtown, like the Flatland district or the finance district. You go over to uh, Austria, on the other hand, it's like, oh, I... Uh, I'm at a colonial reenact. And when you take that into account with how different it is from the world around it, it's I just imagine it's very similar to like how do the Amish integrate or deal with the world around them considering they choose to live the way they do. And the fact that they have any sort of relation at all to the outside world that's still somewhat dependent on them and that they coexist with each other, it's very interesting to see. What was interesting about Suitsu to me is it also gave Thing was warbler a really interesting conundrum of like your job as a public servant in that situation is to make it work right and and keep the territory and there's always this question of like do you step out of line with what your job description is when you feel like what you're being asked to do is not the right thing and it's just it's a very cool story arc that you know, they don't spend a ton of time on because they don't need to. They flush it out really well. But it's just a cool conflict that kind of grows naturally from a place like Suitsu where I, I think the Amish analogy is apt, except that, you know, the folks in Suitsu, a lot of them aren't choosing to be like that. And so the tension is between the governor and the people who are promising change but not delivering it and like when do you step out and be civil disobedient it was it's one of my favorite episodes for the questions it raises 
and it never feels like they spend too much time in one district at all. It successfully conveys everything you need to know about each part of the continent of Akka, or no, the Kingdom of Doa, I believe is what it is. Yes, Kingdom of Doa, and then I guess they named it Akka because it looks like a bird that has now gone extinct, which I thought was a funny little joke. And the continent is shaped like a bird, and given that it has an island continent, Hare, which is effectively Hawaii, it looks like it's a bird taking a crap. Now you can't unsee it. Thanks for that. You're welcome. Uh, is there anything else that we can add? Because we've talked a lot at length. For a show that is just this simple and so basic, we're getting a lot of mileage out of this show and discussing it. I think that's because it's that detail-oriented. I think when you have a show that they had 12 episodes and they thought so deeply about every single solitary part of it, you know, there's just so much to unpack out of it. And I think, you know, the fact that we can talk this long about a 12 episode show when, you know, there's 50 episode shows you work hard to talk for a half hour about really just demonstrates the quality of it. I have to agree. And, you know, having been on the show before and having had like briefer conversations and longer ones, I mentioned prior to us recording that I had somewhat mixed feelings about the ending of Akka because the ending of the show is not bad at all. And I'm not going to say anything to spoil it because anybody listening deserves to enjoy the show for themselves. What I will say, though, is that what, what I think I'm left with ambivalence towards the ending is because Akka does such a good job in presenting its world and its aesthetic that the ending leaves you wanting for more. I want more from this world. I want more from Akka as an organization. I want to see these characters in more situations. But I know the story is told, and I think the fact that the story is so strong and these characters are so well presented that I'm still thirsty, still hungry for these appetites, you know, it says a lot about the show, and we probably could continue to expatiate upon it further, but I think it would just be maybe doing a disservice continuing to maybe pick out a show that it's one of its strengths is that it does leave you wanting for more. It does make you want to go back and rewatch it, and I think the only other show in recent memory that has had the same effect that we've also had a conversation at length about uh, was Guard. Guard was also another show that caught me off guard with just how much was going on in it. And I would say if anybody, even though they're very different shows, if Guard appealed to you because of just how detailed the world was and its infrastructure, Waka will appeal to you in a similar way. It's not often that you see a show where you can say, yes, there are shows that have pieces of it, but there's only like one Aka 13. That doesn't necessarily mean you'll like it because it is slower pace and all this stuff. But I can't think of any other show animated or otherwise that, that has the same feel to it. And that uniqueness goes a long way. I guess my feelings about Aka is that Aka is not an anime for people that want something that's going to blow their mind 
or just blow them away every single episode. Or people who want flashy action scenes or Sakaga moments every 15 seconds. It's a show for people that just want to lay back and relax. It's for people that want something a lot more cerebral. And not cerebral in a head-trippy sort of way, just something that asks them to pay a little more attention than to just say, Hey, this is important. You need to pay attention. It's not that sort of show that holds your hand all the way through. It just simply asks you, Hey, hey, pay attention every now and again. The show looks pretty, but... There's some important stuff going on that you might want to pay attention to. It's also, for that same reason, amazing on rewatch. Yeah. Akka is a show that, if I were to rewatch it again, I would notice all sorts of little small and subtle details. Reading the manga certainly did help with my enjoyment of it. But Akka is one of the shows, like Death Parade for me, that only improves on every single rewatch. You might not care for it the first time around, but when you watch it again you really do enjoy it, and it's a nice little come-down show after something as manic as Symphogear. I can imagine that being a bit of a interesting double feature. <laughs> oh no, you, you want to know what the most interesting double feature in anime history is? Hmm. Runner-up goes to the double feature of Legend of the Galactic Heroes, My Conquest is the Sea of Stars, and the classic trashy lowbrow OAV Ultimate Teacher... But the grand prize for craziest double feature ever, My Neighbor Totoro and Grave of the Fireflies. No, don't. Oh, Nate. That's whiplash in four hours. Nate, why, Nate, why would you do that? Going from Symphogear to Akka for me is like driving 90 miles an hour down on the Autobahn in a Lamborghini to just going for a nice Sunday drive in the forests of Sussex County, New Jersey in your Subaru with the windows down. That is a nice drive. It's been a while since I've been to Sussex. And if you enjoy Akka, I do recommend the other works of Natsume Ono. Again, she's one of those manga authors whose works to me are what I think of when I think of reasons I love manga. She is definitely more... She doesn't write grandiose epic or flashy stories. She writes simple stories about people. And that's the best way I can describe Akka. It's a story of a nation, its people, and the people who work for them to guarantee peace in the region, as I said at the very start of this episode. And with that, I think we've said everything we need to say about Akka. Is there anything else we want to add? Watch it. It will be an excellent use of your time. Yeah, definitely watch it. Um, and like I said, it's one of those shows that has podcast appeal. So why I would definitely recommend watching it because it is stylish as hell. You don't necessarily have to be physically looking at it to enjoy the story it's telling. It is that good. Yeah, take the time. Take the time to take it in. It is streaming on Crunchyroll and it is available on Blu-ray for you to buy. I personally bought the Blu-ray because it includes a few extra episodes in there as well, as well as the OAV. Unfortunately, I didn't get around to watching the OAV, but the series itself is a very enjoyable meal. And with that, that's going to conclude our episode. If you enjoyed our little lengthy discussion about Akka, and by an extent, Natsume Ono's aesthetics, give us a like, subscribe to us on platforms like Spotify, SoundCloud, Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts, any place you get your podcasts from. You can follow me on social media at 
OtakuNateShow on Twitter and Facebook, and you can also follow me on Instagram at NateTendoWii, where I'm constantly posting pictures of myself at sporting events, either by myself or with my friends and family. Bronx, do you have anything to plug? Yeah, I'll plug myself. So I'm a freelance illustrator. I specialize in portraiture, fantasy art, and I also have done some erotic art, if that's anything up your alley. If you're interested in seeing my art, you can find my safer work fantasy art at Bronx Kuma Art on Instagram or Bronx Kuma at artstation.com. If you're interested in my more risque work, you can check me out on Twitter at Naughty Grizzly Studios. Uh, oh, correction, N Grizzly Studios. Uh, and you'll see my name there is Naughty Grizzly Studios on Twitter. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. Next time on the Otaku Nate Show, I decided to look at something a little more recent. So we go from the rather ugly world of politics to something a lot more cuter. Because next time, we head down to Akihabara, the electric district where otaku culture runs rampant, to witness one of 2022's big sleeper hits as we go down to the cute but deadly world of Akiba Maid War. Yes! <laughs> I'm looking forward to hearing that one. Oh, I try not to look at stuff that's too recent, but Akiba Maid War was too good for me to not talk about. I, I know that it was the season that gave us season two of Spy Family and Chainsaw Man, but to me, Akiba Made War tops both of them. I love Akiba Made War, and I'll tell you why next time. So until then, this is Otaku Nate. This is Eric. Bronx Kuma. And we're signing off and saying, anything's fine as long as it's bread. Bread.